0: And a pleasant good evening to you all, Jaden Daly, back with you on the Daily Dose of Hoops podcast episode number seven as we wrap up the month of February and get closer to conference tournaments and the NCAA tournament happening in the Indianapolis bubble. We'll do that, and we welcome to the show a longtime friend and supporter and Twitter follower for years who has his own podcast. He does a lot of work with a dime Back, one of my favorite team-specific sites covering UConn men's and women's basketball in reference to the epic Jim Calhoun press conference of so many years ago when UConn was in its rightful place in the Big East, where it is once again, and helping rule the college basketball world. When he's not covering the Huskies, he works for SB Nation, and he's the managing editor of Mid-Major Madness, another great resource for the mid-major game. And that is Russ Steinberg. Russ, it's been a long time coming for me to get you on this podcast. I guess I have to fire myself for not calling you sooner. But thank you very much for coming on and spending some time with us.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been, uh, it's been weird going through this year without uh, seeing you at games all the time.
0: Right back at you. I mean, you and I have done press throw in about three or four different states. So yes, we have. Yes, yeah, the night before the Super Bowl at the Palestra. Random gyms in New York, and we still have the zebra alerts. Thank God for that.
1: <laughs> of course. Uh, and don't, don't leave out New Jersey. We've done quite a few at the, uh, Prudential Center.
0: Yes, we have. That we have, and we'll get into Prudential. It's a good thing you brought that up because one of UConn's next opponents to Seton Hall, but before that, the Huskies will take on Marquette Saturday, and the Huskies will do so having won three of their last four. The one loss being a close eight-point game to Villanova, close in the sense that the final score was closer than the game led on. Villanova was in control for most of it, but UConn has since battled back. They defeated Georgetown in its most recent game, and they'll get Georgetown again to close out the regular season. But Russ, I'll ask you this. Since the COVID pause and the return of James Booknight, Dan Hurley has this team. Firing close to all cylinders, what has impressed you most about how Utah has navigated the last two, three weeks after the loss to Seton Hall and then going into this stretch now, winning three out of four and reestablishing itself as a top four team in the Big East?
1: Well, I, I think that loss to Providence on February 10th was a turning point for them. Uh, they really, uh, you know, they played OK in the first half of that game, then really fell flat in, in the second half and let Providence uh, control the end of that game. They came out after that, again, without James Booknight and won at Xavier. Uh, not an easy task. And the, th- what, what impressed me uh, about that game and in the games since, because remember, Booknight is still working his way back, um, is that they've had somewhat different step up every time they've needed it. Uh, I was R.J. Cole in the second half against Georgetown after they kind of sputtered uh, through the first half. It's been Tyrese Martin. Um, at, at other points, Adama Sinogo, the freshman, has had uh, some really good spurts as well. And, and then Book Knight, you know, he, he does what he has to do, even though he's still working his way back. Uh, the, a lot of different weapons on this team. And, and I think that's something that maybe people don't appreciate enough. And, and you're starting to see it now in this little run they've had.
0: And Russ, being so well-versed in the mid-major game as you are. You've seen Dan Hurley do this with teams before, with Rhode Island, the first year that the Rams won the Atlantic 10 in 2017 and broke into the NCAA tournament and played, Played, I believe it was Creighton, because that was Oregon-Iona on the other side of the 314 in that pod in Sacramento. Do you get a similar vibe with this year's UConn team? compared to 2017 URI where you have one alpha EC Matthews then book night now and a supporting cast that can be the alpha on any given night.
1: I, I could see that. Uh, y- you have uh, a few things that are kind of similar with every Dan Hurley team. And, you know, number one is they're great defensively, which this team's still getting there, but I think for the most part you could say that uh, they have really good guards and they approve, improve uh, in a lot of ways as the year goes on. And of course, from year one to year two, as you saw at both Wagner and Rhode Island. And, and I think uh, the, the comparison specifically to the 2017 Rhode Island team is a good one. Now, your memory is definitely better than mine. Um, but but you're right. I mean, looking at that Rhode Island team. Yeah, e- E.C. Matthews was the guy. But what a supporting cast he had around around him. And those were also guys who would later end up being uh, huge pieces to Rhode Island teams down the road, thinking about Jeff Dow and Hassan Martin. Oh, sorry. Martin was the senior that year, getting my years mixed up. uh, But Cyril Langevine, another one, part of that freshman class. So, yeah, I I could totally see it.
0: Talking to Ross Steinberg, a dime back, mid-major madness, SB Nation, probably more credits than time constraints will allow me to mention, but we're talking UConn, and UConn goes into battle against the Marquette team Saturday at Gampel, and Marquette comes in off an impromptu non-conference interlude at a 13-point upset of North <laughs> Carolina in the Dean Dome. I've hidden my UNC fandom for the most part on this podcast, trying to be professional, but that was a typical low-reward, very high-risk game for the Tar Heels that Marquette took advantage of and Dawson Garcia took advantage of UNC. Now, Russ, I ask you this, going into this game Saturday, what does Marquette present for Utah from a matchup problem standpoint, and where do the Huskies need to attack this Golden Eagle slot? It's a good question, but
1: Marquette, now I didn't see the game last night. So remember that um, but, neither did I. I was watching Seton Hall and Butler. Okay. Okay. Um, Marquette other than North Carolina has not beaten a team not named Butler uh, in over a month. So it's, it's a team that uh, is trending the wrong way. And uh, thinking back to that first game that these two teams played, uh, James Booknight was really a non-factor in that game. He got hurt early on. He did play the rest of that game, um, but of course missed the next eight after that. And he was just not the same. What UConn was able to do was take advantage of some not so great uh, perimeter defense from Marquette. They ranked 272nd in the country. Now looking at their Ken Pompage in three point percentage defense and Tyler Polly was able to go off. And, and that is, is something I would be interested to see if Polly can have another strong game. He had a good stretch there at the beginning of Book Knight's absence and then really struggled uh, without him, without somebody as um, as, as a primary assignment uh, for opposing defenses, because that is how Polly gets looks. And, and I think that will be interesting to see. Uh, you're also starting to see RJ Cole shoot the ball a little bit better. Maybe this could be an opportunity for him as well.
0: Now, when you look at UConn at eight and six in the Big East, and a very critical matchup at the Prudential Center against Seton Hall on Wednesday, March 3rd, with the Marquette game preceding that. Do you look at that game, Russ, and get a sense of that being the difference between the day session and the night session? And for UConn fans, the difference between do they pregame on the way to the Garden, or (laughs) do they enjoy themselves – at about five o'clock and take advantage of a literal happy hour. How big is that game Wednesday night? I hate looking ahead, but given how close the two teams are in the standings, how big is that one for you? It's
1: it's huge. And, And even more so than which, you know, which session you play in. But if they win that game, you know, assuming they do what they have to do against Marquette and Georgetown, UConn's a lock to be in the tournament at that point, in my opinion, no matter what happens at MSG. Um, and, and I think that's their main focus right now. Now you look, you look at seeding, and yeah, UConn would definitely rather be the three seed than have to play in that four or five game on uh, on Thursday afternoon. Uh, th- this will be a this will be a good game that UConn let the game at Gamble get away from them against Seton Hall. It was it was one that they could have had, and that was without uh, without James Booknight. I will be very interested to see uh, how they can do. In this one, and remember, UConn's won five road games this year. Uh, they they are a decent team on the road, and you know I know there aren't as many fans in attendance this year. COVID, blah blah blah. Uh, there, there's something to be said for that, and there will be some fans in attendance at Prudential Center, excited about that. There will be certainly some UConn fans there as well, and and it should be a fun one.
0: Talking to Ross Steinberg, a Dimebacker, Major Madness, SP Nation. And on that note, you mentioned UConn winning road games and now getting to play games with the backdrop of fans in the stands, assuming that the Big East does allow them into Madison Square Garden. And I've, I've looked at this and I've told people, I said, there are two schools who are going to be the biggest beneficiaries of having fans to garden. One is St. John's with the way the red storm has been resurgent this year in, under Mike Anderson. And the second one is UConn. To those who don't know, UConn has taken over the garden practically unlike any other school from a powerhouse standpoint, from influencing the effect of a crowd on a game and look no further than the 2014 East regional where UConn fans bought tickets for almost $800 up in the blue seats, of the garden and, really turn that into stores south just russ you've been on both sides of this as a fan and covering games where uconn has played in the garden just can you describe the effect that msg has on this program and this fan base
1: it, it's huge um you know uconn historically has always filled up the garden i mean you, you and i have done big east tournaments forever you know that mm-hmm. but it changed In 2014, after uh, the Big East split, because I I think one thing uh, other than, you know, annual games against Syracuse, Georgetown, Villanova, Louisville, whatever, uh, one thing fans really missed was playing games at the Garden. And the fact that they got them there in 2014, you saw that fan base turn out so much, even more than it normally did. And that never stopped. And that's why you saw UConn playing in the Jimmy V there like every other year you saw them playing, you know, one-offs there. You saw them in uh, the 2k classic because they brought so many more fans and you can expect that even to a greater extent. Now, once we get fans in the big East tournament, because this fan base is so desperate to have that again, Uh, they were, it, it was almost insulting to watch them play a conference tournament game, you know, in Orlando in in previous years, while Providence was playing at Madison Square Garden. If it it didn't feel right and it finally feels right again, that that UConn is back where it belongs. And I mean, you, you know, as well as I do, how even just a few fans in that building can make a huge difference just with the way that it's built. Uh, It gets really loud, really fast.
0: Absolutely. And I'm, I'm not kidding people. When I say Cardiac Kembo is the greatest game I've actually ever covered in person in terms of overall finish and just the atmosphere that day before St. John's played Syracuse right there. How about that for a day session, doubleheader, you get UConn, UConn and Syracuse in a 12 o'clock at a two 30 game.
1: So funny thing about that, if, if I could interrupt you, um, I went to the first two games of that uh, of that tournament, the first two Yukon games, DePaul and Georgetown, and I was in college at a midterm for uh, the cardiac Kemba game. But I got back to our newspaper office and, and watched it there. I streamed it. And what I did after that was went up to Madison Square Garden, stood outside as people from the afternoon session were coming out and tried to scalp a ticket for the next day because I, I couldn't. I couldn't not go and, and be a part of that run. I, th- I think when Kemba hit that shot, that was kind of when people started to realize they, they could actually do this thing, the five games in five days, because that was their toughest test pit.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> 10, 10 years already. Jeez. Yeah, so that's
1: unbelievable. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, yeah. And now we'll shift gears a little bit and we'll talk about the lady Huskies and you say unbelievable is that, the word to describe page Beckers or am I am I running out of adjectives to describe what she's meant to this program already just three months into her career?
1: Unbelievable is a pretty good place to start. Um, you know, you, you watched her highlights in high school and you knew she was going to be great. You could see that she was an extraordinary passer. You could see that. Um, she can take control of a team. She could score. What I didn't expect was for her to be this good of a shooter as well. And the fact that she could do that and that you've seen her defense improve just over the course of this season. Um, I have never seen as complete a player as a freshman as, as Paige Beckers. And I already think she is the best passer I've ever seen in the college game
0: we're talking to russ steinberg to dime back mid-major madness sb nation now talking about uconn on the women's side number one in the country once again it's been long enough to where we can't say it's automatic anymore and that's the credit to the rise of the women's game and the advent of other powerhouse programs besides the huskies the question now going into the big east tournament isn't will uconn win it's how much will they win by, and who stands the biggest threat to this group? And you look at Marquette having just beaten DePaul in the, and the two and the three in the Big East Conference, and then Tony Bozzello and Seton Hall, a group that has taken UConn to the limit twice already in the last couple of years. Russ, when you look at the layout at Mohideen Sun, which has the Big East Tournament now for the next couple of years, What stands out as far as UConn's challengers and who do you see ultimately getting to championship night?
1: Well, they don't have any challengers right now. It's, it's going to be UConn and they're going to win every game by double digits. They're that far ahead of everybody else. Uh, I think the second best team in that conference right now is Marquette. And I think they proved that in, you know, their recent run, they're on fire right now. I think they just, uh, they just knocked off a DePaul team that has started to really struggle and I I know this by putting a women's bracket together every week, DePaul is not safe uh, in in its spot in the field, so it needs to pick it up. But Marquette right now has won five in a row. They're 14-3 and in conference. Um, UConn beat them, of course, in Milwaukee, 87-58, so still wasn't much of a challenge there. I I will say this. I I was talking to a Big East coach uh, a few weeks ago, and maybe maybe you can guess who it is, but this was before uh, UConn played them a second time, and this person said flat out, UConn is not losing a Big East game this year. We're not beating them. DePaul's not beating them. Marquette's not beating them. Take it to the bank. They're rolling through this undefeated. They're winning the champion, the Big East championship and going right into the NCAA tournament as a one seed. And, and they're right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You you look at what UConn has done to this conference and I was watching some of the St. John's game which was a 77 to 32 final and it just reaffirms just how good this program continues to be. It doesn't rebuild, it reloads to those of you who haven't watched much of the women's game, I know my site has focused mainly on the men, but we co- we cover some women's basketball whenever we we have the opportunity and I'm telling you, if you haven't seen UConn yet, and Russ, I know you can back me up here. What are you waiting for?
1: Yeah, you're right. It's You watch that team play, and any criticism the uh, double-digit follower crowd on Twitter has of, of the women's game kind of goes right out the window. Uh, it's such a fun team to watch. They are so much more of a complete team now than I think they were the last couple of years um, and I think a big part of that, not just Paige Beckers, but the freshman Aaliyah Edwards has given them an excellent post presence to go along with Olivia nelson Adota. Um, th- this is such a good team, such a fun team to watch, and they're going to get even better next year uh, when AZ Fudd comes in as well.
0: Talking to Ross Steinberg, a time back, mid-major madness, SB Nation. We'll get away from UConn just a bit. Conference tournaments are starting Thursday night, February 25th, time of recording right now. With one game already underway in the Horizon League tournament, Detroit Mercy, they go go by UDM now against Robert Morris, newcomers to the Horizon after decades in the NEC. Cleveland State, the number one seed there. Russ, you probably follow more of this than I do here in New York, but you look at the Horizon League and the challengers to Cleveland State, Wright State, Northern Kentucky, Oakland. How do you see that tournament ultimately playing out?
1: Um, well I'm hoping it comes down to the two best teams Cleveland State and, and Wright State they both sputtered a little bit uh, to close out the season I would like to see them face each other in the championship this is not a conference I've seen a ton of this year just because they always seem to conflict with uh, with other uh, with other games that are on at the time but I know you know Cleveland State has had one of the best turnarounds in the country uh, from one year to the next and really the last couple of years uh, to now and they were in a terrible place a few years ago and now they're a realistic NCAA tournament team and of course Wright State is kind of always in that conversation I think Scott, Scott Nagy is going to see his name on, on the short list of some uh, higher level jobs I think uh, I'm thinking of a couple specifically that might open up in his area uh, that might be an interesting fit for him but that's getting a little ha- ahead of ourselves. Tuesday, March 9th, championship game ESPN. I expect to see Wright State in Cleveland State.
0: And a little more local on the mid-major landscape, the America East tournament that starts up over the weekend with pod play at New Hampshire and in Hartford. UMBC and Vermont get double buys into the semifinals. You look at Albany and Stony Brook retooling and coming in middle of the pack, NJIT, in its first year in the conference the America East has always been good for upsets on, on one end, one way or the other, Russ. And when you look at that conference, who do you see ultimately getting the automatic bid and go into the NCAA tournament? Is this another year where it's Vermont's to lose? Does Sean Becker bring the catamounts back into the big dance?
1: You know, I, I think he does. Um, I, I think people kind of forgot about Vermont after they struggled out of the gate. Remember, they really didn't they didn't have a a non-conference season at all. So they started December 21st at UMass Lowell and lost that game. And then they ended up losing three out of their first five and people kind of wrote them off from there. Well, they've only lost one game since, and that was at UMBC. Uh, So they've certainly figured it out. And of course the retrievers themselves are are on a roll too, winners of four of their last five. So again, like in the horizon, it's going to come down to the two best teams there. I think Vermont, has maybe this slight edge. And, you, you know, we talked a minute ago about how the Yukon women just keep reloading. Uh, John Becker could say the same at Vermont. He kind of goes from uh, from star to star. And we've got, you know, another really strong class of, of upper freshmen, of, of classmen here, I should say, uh, in guys like Ryan Davis, Steph Smith, uh, Ben Shungu, and, uh, and the like. And of course, as someone who whose name I'm sure you love, Justin Missoula.
0: Yes. Is he also a 28th year senior? (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah, he's actually (laughs) he's the older brother of Joe (laughs) Missoula.
0: Full disclosure, if you're a regular Twitter follower and if not, at Daily Dose of Hoops, we'll do a shameless plug here. Jason Durant, my colleague who covers Seton Hall with me and myself have frequently referred to on Twitter something called the Joe Mazzullo Award. And we present it every year to the senior or very long-time well-known junior who feels like they've played for a good 15, 20 years. You look at guys like Brad Davison at Wisconsin, Brandon Trish at Syracuse in the past, Perry Ellis was probably the national Joe Mazzullo award winner a few years ago. He looked like it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that too. Uh, Anybody on the bench at Duke, I think this year it's Jordan Goldwire and Joe Mazzullo. When he was at West Virginia, played the last year under John Beeline, and then Redshirted and played his last three under Bob Huggins, and it felt like he was there forever. So that's the background of the Joe Mazzullo Award. And Joe's brother, Justin, transferred out of George Washington after Maurice Joseph got let go and ended up at Vermont. So we digress, and we're talking to Russ <laughs> Steinberg, dying back, mid-major, Madness, SB Nation. The Big South tournament also gets underway this weekend. Winthrop is the favorite there. Pat Kelsey has a team that is – On the bubble, as far as an at-large is concerned, I don't think the Eagles have the resume to withstand that if they get knocked off in the conference tournament. So I I do think it's going to be a one-bid league, as it usually is. But, Russ, you look at Winthrop, Chandler Vodron, and the cast that Pat Kelsey has in Rock Hill, who do you see being the challenger there that could possibly spring an upset?
1: Well, Asheville's the only team to beat them. Keep an eye on them. Radford and Campbell both playing really well right now could be candidates as well. But I do think Winthrop is far and away the best team in this conference, even if they had a couple of close calls down the stretch also against uh, Tubby Smith's crew at high point. Uh, This team, it's a shame. You're right. They're probably not a strong at-large candidate if they falter in the Big South tournament. Uh, It's too bad because this is a team that I think can win a game, uh, if they make it. And that's because first of all, they can really score. Uh, they play really fast. They rank 13th in the nation in tempo, but that's because they're so good at putting the ball in the basket and they could do that a whole lot. Uh, they have the size to compete with a high major team. Uh, they have the athletes and they will give somebody a lot of problems if they make it. So I really, really hope they do. Um, they have a, a, a few strong teams in this conference. No one quite as good as them. Um, but, you know, like I said, Asheville already beat them and played them close another time. High Point played them close twice. Uh, we'll see what happens. Talking to Ross
0: Steinberg, to dime back mid Major Madness, SB Nation shedding some light on conference tournaments that start this weekend at the end of February and then Monday when we all mimic John Rothstein at midnight and say this is March. So we'll get into that and we'll get into the Jerome as well. The popular tournament, if you will, a pick them among college basketball media insiders, what have you, where you p- try to pick the winners of each conference tournament. And Russ, aside from what we just profiled, who do you see as a potential bonus point pick in the Jerome as a, maybe a three or a four seed that can come through and steal a bid?
1: That's a good question. Um, First, first team that comes to mind might be Nevada in the Mountain West. Now, difficult thing there is that the Mountain West is very top heavy. So they would have to get through, you know, Boise, San Diego State, Colorado State, Utah State, at least, you know, a couple of them. Uh, But Nevada is a team no one's really talking about. And they're on a roll. They just swept Boise State. They're 14 and seven overall top 100 in Ken Palm. Uh, this is a, a team that uh, Steve Alford has really moving in the right direction. They got a guy that I, I know you're familiar with because we watched him play together, Desmond Cambridge uh, at, at the guard, the transfer from Brown. Mm-hmm. Uh, we been lighting it up there. Uh, it, Nevada might be an interesting play uh, that, but again, it's, you're running a big risk there uh, just knowing who else is in that conference. Um, I. I'm giving a quick look to some of the others right now. The MAC, the MAC, that MAC, uh, interesting one as well. Buffalo could be a good candidate there as, you know, the sort of middle of the pack team. The thing about the MAC is a lot of those teams are bunched very closely together. So you might get a three or a four seed that, that makes a run in that way. So I'd keep an eye on the MAC as well.
0: Russ Steinberg, SB Nation, Mid-Major Madness Dime back. and we'll ask you what we've asked the last couple guests on our podcast as far as the coaching search of Fordham. We asked this to Josh Adams and Jake Zimmer when we had them on a couple of weeks ago, and then Vin Parisi when he was on previewing Iona Manhattan. Ed Cole, a guy who you and I both know from his work in the area former external AD at St. John's is the full-time athletic director at Fordham. Now he's running the search after Jeff Newbauer departed in the middle of the season. Mike DiPaoli is the interim candidate. A lot of names have been thrown around Jared Grasso, Shane Holloway, Kyle Neptune, the assistant of Villanova. Russ, who do you see right now? And I, I know Fordham is still an intriguing job, New York, Atlantic 10, potential to resurrect a sleeping giant that has fallen on hard times over the last couple of decades. Who do you see right now that can ultimately be a candidate here, picking up some steam and could be the guy that turns this around?
1: Yeah. From what I understand, Jared Grasso probably has the inside track there if he wants the job. Um, Shaheen Holloway, another guy that you mentioned. A couple other names to maybe consider. Um, and this is just, you know, perusing the internet and trying to rack my own brain for interesting names. Uh, Jack Perry, perhaps he got a raw deal at LIU Brooklyn, uh, is now at Southern New Hampshire. He could be a candidate, uh, someone like Chuck Martin assistant at South Carolina might be an interesting fit. Keep an eye on him as well. It's a tough job. And you know, you and I both know that very well, you're not going to get, you know, the hottest low major coach at in the country to come and put it all on the line at Fordham. But there, there's talent here. I think there is a path to success in, in this program. They just haven't hit it uh, to this point. I would expect, though, that uh, Grasso or Holloway will be the way that they go.
0: Talking to Ross Steinberg, Dime Back, Mid Major Madness, SB Nation covering just about a little bit of everything in the Northeast as far as college basketball and also the national mid-major landscape, Russ, thank you again for coming on and spend some time with us. Any last words going into conference tournament season for our fans to be mindful of?
1: Um, I, I just want to say how, how excited I am that we're going to have a March this year. That's, that's really it. I mean, I, I was at the game. I, I can't remember. Were you at the, uh, Quarterfinal, the Big East tournament last year.
0: I was not. I was still in Atlantic City, and oh, okay. Had I not had I not stayed up until four a.m. writing a Greg Paulus feature, oh, geez. I I would have gone. I would have gone to the Garden for that St. Creighton game. It's... So my my Big East quarterfinal streak. Well, my Big East quarterfinal streak ended a couple of years before that when I was at the ACC. Mm. But yeah, it's not I... twenty years like yours.
1: Yeah, I'm, this is uh this will be 21 for me if I'm lucky enough to be able to actually get an on-site credential this year. So we'll see, but I am just, I'm so excited to have an NCA tournament to have uh, conference tournaments. And, you know, you and I could probably sit here and argue till we're blue in the face about whether they should be playing, how they should be playing uh, all the ethical um, things that come into play here, but uh, right or wrong. And you, call me a hypocrite for it. If you want, I'm going to forget all about that as soon as the game start and, and I'll sit back and, and I'll enjoy it and, and hope everyone could stay healthy.
0: I, I think we, I think we all will. So you're, you're definitely not the only one as far as that's concerned. Russ Steinberg, Dimeback, mid-major madness, SB nation, college basketball writer slash podcaster slash Mr. Everything. Thank you again for coming on spending some time with us.
1: Thanks for having me. This was great.
0: Absolutely.